Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the MedTech Money Podcast brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast on the MedTech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. We have two events coming up this year, the Midwest Showcase in Cleveland, Ohio, August 30th, and our Startup Symposium in Houston, Texas, October 25th and 26th. All information to sign up for those two events can be found on our website, so head there and don't miss these events. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Galen Data. Galen Data is an FDA-compliant cloud for medical device manufacturers. The Galen Cloud provides a configurable platform for device-to-cloud connectivity that is compliant to FDA, HIPAA, and CE mark standards. The company is ISO 1345 certified, and the product on AWS is High Trust certified as well. Founded by seasoned medical device professionals, the company's goal is to make medical device cloud connectivity available to all at a fraction of the cost while shaving months off the development timeline. Galen Data allows medical device companies to stay medical device companies and not become IT companies. In this episode, our host Giovanni Loricella and our guest Mike Wallace at Devoro Medical discuss his role as a venture fund, selling to Boston Scientific, being a part of a team, 880 Medical, Shangbei Capital, Build Dubai, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Mike Wallace. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. Mike, thank you very much for being here with us today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And I love these particular episodes because it's the whole series giving back with more and more updates and also amazing stories to tell. And we were actually introduced by Joe Rafferty, who was also on this podcast series. And he told me about this amazing story that existed in MedTech that had to be told. And then I had a lucky fortune of hearing a little glimpse of it on our previous call, but we're here to tell the rest of the story today and and let all these entrepreneurs out there know your story, but also this amazing entrepreneurial adventure that you've been on throughout your career. So the reason why we are here is that we have talked to medtech entrepreneurs like yourself, as well as investors from around the world. And what I've discovered is that there is no silver bullet or specific formula or even magic about how to raise or invest capital in medtech. So my goal here is to extract insights to demystify this process and help medtech innovators benefit from this information. And so we have an audience of medtech entrepreneurs as well as investors. And what I want to do is share your stories and advice so that we can help our listeners learn from you. And more specifically for those first-time founders or CEOs who literally have no clue of what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital and building businesses. So I thought the best place to start is to learn from experienced professionals like yourself. 
And Mike, we're going to get into who you are and your amazing adventure and your your latest company that you had a successful exit with, with Devoro Medical, and also jump into the fact that you're our venture partner over at Chengbei Capital today. But before we get into who you are and what you've done and what you've built, I have some opening questions that I want to toss your way, with the first one being, in your opinion, what is the lifeblood of a medtech startup or what keeps startups alive? Awesome. Giovanni, thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be here. And and uh, yeah, I've had a really fun career. And so I've been really blessed and, and it's really fun just to be chatting with you. So lifeblood of startups, you know, uh, Three things kind of come to mind. One is, you know, you got to have the crazy people part, the ambitious people who want to kind of make their mark on the world. And so, you know, the simple example in the heart world is, you know, you got someone who invents bypass surgery, uh, and then that's a huge breakthrough for coronary a disease, but it's kind of invasive. So then someone comes up and says, why don't we do it from the inside out? And so they come up with the first angioplasty balloon. I think that was Daughter and Runzig. Um, I'm sure there's always a team of people. It's never one or two people. And then, of course, those vessels, they open up, minimally invasive. It's a miracle. But then they re- some of them uh, re-stenose. And so someone says, why don't I put a stent in there? The guy, Dr. Julio Palmas, comes along. And uh, and then that works even better than balloon angioplasty. And then they have a re-stenosis problem, not as bad. And they come up with drug drug regulating stents, which of course is the gold standard today. So the first thing is the crazy ambitious people who want to kind of move the needle forward. They're they're the these entrepreneurs, these inventors, uh, these physicians, these these teams of people that do great things. So this the second thing I think of is is the, the lifeblood of startups is you need the kind of the ecosystem that inspires people to take risk. And I call it the apprentice phenomena. So you've got um you know, you got people like me who end up working in this, this Silicon Valley in the Bay Area here, and I didn't want to take a lot of risk. I was a single breadwinner uh, in the family. I had four kids. And so I was trying to figure out how do I navigate uh, and, and participate in the entrepreneurial world without taking crazy, crazy risk. And I saw these people. I started working in big companies at the beginning, and I saw what I thought were kind of average employees, average engineers average marketers go on into amazing, high risky, uh, and very successful uh, endeavors in startups. So I thought, if they can do it, uh, maybe I can do it too. So these mere mortals can do it, then I can do it too. So I call it the apprentice phenomenon. You just kind of see other people have success and build companies. And, and then you go, just like these podcasts, you share how it's done and you study it and you learn it. Um, and then the third thing of the lifeblood is for sure is is beautiful capitalism. So there's there's money to be made here, and money is needed uh, to kind of move these projects along. And so fortunately, you know, venture got involved um, in medical device investing, um, you know, 30, 30 years ago. And uh, without them, and without angels that take risks. Uh, and uh, family members, there would be uh, there would be no uh, there be no med device uh, startup world. So, and the reason why they do it is because it's exciting, and but also there's money to be made, and the odds are better than gambling at Vegas. They're they're not actually tremendously high odds, but they are better than pure gambling. And uh, and people get the pleasure, of course, when they do have a a hit. That also patients, in this case, the customer, really benefits. 
So in summary on all those, we have the crazy people, the crazy entrepreneurs that move the needle. We have the ecosystem that's necessary. And then we have the actual capitalism slash capital component that we all need and, and search and find and run for. Great summary, yeah. So the second one, and I, I need your full spectrum answer on this one because I know you've done it a few times, but what's the hardest part about building a med tech startup? And, and usually I get a chance to answer that, or I should say ask that with someone who's done it one time, but you've done it multiple times. So what is the hardest part about building a startup? Yeah, I mean, there's there's investing in building. And I think, you know, first of all, investors, founders, employees, no one wants to waste their time a decade working on something that goes nowhere. And that happens, unfortunately. Like, there's some inefficiencies in the process. Um, and different people have different philosophies on this. I, you know, I try to mitigate as many risks as I can. And you need to decide kind of what your disposition is for how long you want to work on a project. So if you're willing to work on a project for 10 years, then you can go work on a crazy disruptive product that maybe has a big clinical trial component and it's going to take a long, long time to get to market. Or if you don't have that kind of uh, longer view, you can look more at a 510k product that arguably you can get a result in two to three years. And in general, I fall in the latter category, and at least I want a proof point. I want the satisfaction of being able to measure my contribution and success in a shorter period. So in general, I, I set my sights on things that are closer. Now, you can still get satisfaction on projects that maybe require a big, long project that you can get clinical results, maybe OUS, go to South America, or you can go to Eastern Europe, and you can move the needle that way. But that that's the first piece of it, is kind of deciding... Uh, you know, how long you're willing to play on this thing and, and how do you mitigate the risks? So the risks are like infinite in that device. Technically, will it work? Uh, you know, what is the clinical risk that it will? So just say it technically works. Well, but clinically, do you treat the disease? Then you've got the regulatory timeline, the clinical timeline. And then the last thing is the reimbursement. Um, and so I like, to, I like to try to mitigate as many of them as possible and try to focus on the ones where you can have the biggest impact on patients with the lowest risk. And so I have a tendency to look for 510K products, but I also will look at IDE products, but not maybe PMA programs because they're just too slow paced for me. Um, so those, and then I look for trends, right? I don't want to go into a market where there's a thousand com competitors. I mean, uh, I did that once. I did a spine, I did a spine startup and, um, it was, it, we did some amazing work. A company was called Baxano. It was with some great people, Tony Recupero and Amy Borgstrom, uh, Nick Kerr, but, and we did some great work, but it was just so competitive. We just couldn't get, we, we, we couldn't compete and the reimbursement wasn't good. So I like to go on spaces where I really feel like maybe there being, instead of being 20 competitors, there's two or three. Uh, and you think you have a real leg up technology wise and you can deliver some value uh, to the patient. And then, and then I really believe it's all about execution and cadence. I mean, I, I, I talk to, as a venture partner now at Shanghai, I talk to founders a lot. And I'm always surprised how they've been around for five, six, 10 years. And I always look to see what is their cadence of progress. And I really feel like every company has a window because the markets change. And so once you identify the place you want to be in, 
you want to be an execution machine because that window will open and close and you want to be there to, to capitalize on that. And that means raise enough money and execute your program. Do a really good job developing and executing your product. And if that requires a clinical trial, execute that. So that's kind of how I approach things. I know it's kind of a lot of generalisms there. That's how I kind of approach uh, going after building companies. So then I want to get on in terms of raising capital, and this might go into some of your future stories you'll tell here, uh, the best and the worst pieces of advice that you've received when you were building your businesses. And then it could be at various companies. It could be all at the same company. It could obviously be throughout your entire career. But as you were starting these med tech innovative companies, you had to raise money at some point or in even some capacity to, to get to the next milestone. What were some of the best pieces of advice and the worst pieces of advice that you can remember? Yeah, the, the best advice as an entrepreneur, it was, you know, and this is, a, I think, a Kleinerism from a famous venture capital guy, is you raise money when you can, not when you need it. Because markets change. And if you get someone who's super interested, we were very lucky at Devora, uh, the company, uh, the from back to me company that we successfully uh, sold to Boston, um, where during COVID, we had this inbound interest in the company and I wasn't even looking for money. And um, so, but we took it really seriously and we used it as a way of leveraging and, and trying to get uh, the best terms we could. So the best advice is, is that when you have an opportunity to raise money, people are like, oh, I don't want to take too much money because I'm going to get diluted too much. But you take the money when you can get the money um, because you'll run into times where it's a real bear to raise. Um, and I, I don't know if I have a, 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 the worst advice. I, I tell you that the, I just never got great advice on how to raise money. Like it's a real art and it's, it's still really fuzzy how you do it. No one ever really explained how the best way, I mean, this idea of going up and down Sand Hill Road and raising money from VCs early on is you just, they don't invest. I mean, there's very few venture capital folks. So I would say rather than the worst advice uh, is, is, you know, there's a certain way of doing it. There isn't, you just have to be scrappy and you have to talk to a, a lot of people to find out uh, who would be interested in funding your company. Um, so, but the, the best way to do it is just get enough money from anyone who's willing to invest in you and make measurable progress and start de-risking the program. And then once you've de-risked it enough, then you'll be able to get what I call more sophisticated investors who, who will uh, be willing to invest in you. This one's a you question. This is a Mike question. So it could be about business. It could be about gardening. But what is the book that you would recommend our audience to read and why? It could be literally any topic. Yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I'm not that uh, creative where I can make a, a gardening advice. So it would be around entrepreneurship. So there are two cool books that influenced me. One is a super fun book. It's Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Uh, you know, founded Nike, and um, I just thought it was just it, it just embraced the excitement, and enthusiasm about what it takes us to to start up a company. And he's got some crazy stories in there and. It, 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 so it's a lighter read, but if you read that and you don't <clears throat> get excited, then you know you're not supposed to be an entrepreneur. But it's a real fun, <laughs> a real fun read. This guy was faking it till you make it. Like you won't believe 
um, trying to build this crazy business and enticing Japanese investors and that kind of stuff. So it's a real fun book. And the second book that really helped me, you know, I'm an engineer by training to figure out how to stack the deck in my favor for if I do start a startup company or I do join a startup company, which I did early on. I, I did my apprentice by being part of a management team of three startups um, was The Innovator's Dilemma. So it was this book done by the Intel guy. He talked about what's so hard about big companies innovating. But I remember one graph in this book. And so the graph in this book talked about that mapped all the tech startups. It wasn't med tech. It was more tech. And it mapped them. And it said, which of the ones are more likely to succeed? And so in one category were companies that were based on revolutionary new technology going into new or existing markets. And those companies almost always failed because there's just so much risk with the technology being so unique. And then there's another group of companies that really leveraged existing technologies, technologies that were kind of already figured out, but in new markets. And, and those had much greater odds of being successful. And so I remember that little graph and I've kind of applied it to my career when I'm vetting companies to work for. I don't want to work on the technology that like has never been ever done before. And so even with our thrombectomy platform, we did innovate this kind of very unique technology called the Wolf technology. It was just this inverting sleeve. No one had ever done it. We first did it for stroke. And then once we mastered how to do it, we then for the next company, Devoro, we went after it for peripheral thrombectomy. And that does increase your odds, right? So instead of worrying about how to get the darn widget to work, you're working on how do you apply it to that market? How do you optimize it for that disease? And then how do you work on all the other parts of the business, which are, are equally as hard? And then this is the, I want to, well, first and foremost, thank you for both of those books. That that was incredibly helpful. I, the shoe dog one, I'm actually interested in myself. I think I'm going to go on Amazon and, and buy it. Right <laughs> now. But the, um, the next thing I wanted to ask you is you talk about CEOs, you talk about building businesses and you talk about others doing it as well. What is the job of a CEO and what's the biggest challenge of a CEO? Yeah. So, so, I mean, the job of the CEO is pretty clear, right? So he, his job is to deliver is, is to lead the organization that he builds to win, right? To win. Right. And he's got, you hear this term stakeholders, which is a very generic term, but the stakeholders are the patients, right? You got to develop a product the patients want. You got to deliver one that the, the customers, your physicians want to use in our case. Got to meet the stakeholders. The hospital's got to win. The, insurance, the people who pay for it. You got to, you got the stakeholders, the employees. And then of course, you got to make your investors happy, right? So the idea is, is that you get a return for your investors. So the idea is, is you know, the, 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 the best CEOs are the CEOs that deliver the winning formula, deliver for all of the stakeholders. Now, but it's almost impossible if you focus on all five stakeholders. How do you how do you how do you win? And when you're doing that, it's too it's just it's too schizophrenic, right? So my co-founder and I, we always used to say that assuming you pick the right market, which takes some effort, and the right clinical problem. So assume you start in the right sandbox, right? How do you how do you succeed as a CEO? Well, you try to you, if you focus on product and procedural excellence. If you develop the best product in that space, the one that actually works, and the one that beats the competition, there's a good chance 
you'll make and it delivers for patients, there's a very good chance you'll satisfy all the other stakeholders. So try to focus on those two things. Get the space right. Get, make sure you're in the right sandbox. Like don't go work on some problem where there's never going to be any reimbursement or no one gives a hoot about it if you develop that clinical solution. There's got to be a real problem to solve there. And then focus on having a world-class product. And then usually the other things will line up. So that's probably the biggest challenge is keeping the focus on the first part because you can get distracted with all those other stakeholders. And uh, if you deliver on the one, usually the other things will work its way out. So this next question I added specifically for you, and I, I definitely want to get this definition out there from your experience. So popping the bubble, and we'll get to your story shortly here, you've successfully sold off companies, right? So you're a successful entrepreneur, and now you're a venture partner at Shengbei Capital. And so I wanted to ask, what is a venture partner? What does it mean to be a venture partner at a venture capital firm? I mean, sometimes you go on LinkedIn and you see venture partner at venture partner. at. What's the difference between a venture partner and a partner and a general partner? Where do you fall in the spectrum? Yeah, so great question. And, and I just learned it myself in the last year. Um, so in general, venture partners, I see them as being usually they're part time folks. They're usually not part. They're usually not full time. So usually the managing partners are the ones that are in there. They've either founded the entity or they're uh, they're there full time, and they're they're required to go help raise money, right? So they they are really the owners of uh, the venture firm, and they have the most at stake, honestly, because their reputation is at line, and everyone knows that the way you raise another fund is you execute and get good returns on your first fund. So a venture partner, which is the thing I am, it varies in definition from firm to firm, but at Shanghai. Basically, um, it's a part-time role, and usually they bring in operational expertise. And my job is really threefold. So my job is hopefully to bring in great, great deal flow. So people know my name, maybe in the community from podcasts like this, or they've seen, uh, you know, they, they heard about Devoro. And so they reach out to me on LinkedIn, say, I have this cool company. So hopefully I can bring in some exciting companies for Shang Bay to, to review and to consider as uh, to invest in. And then the second is, is I'm there to help that, right? So uh, because of my operational experience um, and I know the med device space specifically, um, I'm able to, I have a lot of experience and exposure to different diseases and different markets. And I have my own network that I can help vet deals in. And then the third role of the venture partner is, is um, if we do invest in companies, is to help the CEOs, right? So I have my own operational experience. So whether that's giving them advice or hooking them up with connections, and then in some cases, sitting on the board. So that those are kind of the three roles, deal flow, vetting deals, and then helping, helping our portfolio companies any way I can. And going back to your entrepreneurial days and understanding of how raising capital works now from both sides of the table, being a venture partner, if you had a magic stick, and you could change anything about raising capital or the whole entire process of capital raising from an entrepreneurial perspective, what would you change? Yeah, I think I think I might speak for every CEO out there, at least 90, I'd love to have a cheat sheet. So <laughs> of, 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 I want a cheat sheet of all the investors and all their attributes. You know, I want to know, I want to know, I want a list of the VCs that are actively investing, not the ones that used to invest, 
or have invested or at the end of their fund, the ones that are actually really investing, the strategics, which ones invest early, which ones don't, uh, the angels out there, ones that talk about who are, who are these angels, right? Wouldn't it be awesome to have this list? The amounts that they typically invest, right? What are their minimums? Do they lead? Do they not lead? Um, do they, you know, it turns out there's very few investors that do seed investing, pre, be first in human, which are, who are those? Who are the five that do it? Who invests in the A, B and the C rounds? Uh, who want early exits? Who want to build companies to, to go long? Um, you know, I'd love to know which markets they want to invest. There's, there's a lot of VCs that are just like, they, they certain ones they want to invest in, and ones that they will never touch because they hate and they believe they can't make money in. Um, who are the deciders in the funds? Who are the deciders in the strategics? Um, the, you know, so there's just tremendous inefficiencies. I guess what I'm trying to share is there's tremendous inefficiencies in raising money. Most CEOs would rather operate their companies and raising money is a necessary evil. Now, it is fun to meet all these people and to, to, to work the network. And you do learn things along the way as you stumble across it, but it is not efficient. And um, it's intimidating to a lot of entrepreneurs who, who to get started in this whole thing. So this magic cheat sheet, Giovanni, this is what I would love to have, which I know doesn't exist. I don't Maybe someone can create this thing one day, but it would have to keep updating it too. So I think what you're doing today, like even being on this podcast, sharing your insight and your history, it's already answered the question I'm going to ask you now. But if you were not a medtech entrepreneur, and, and maybe this question would have been better when you were still running Devoro, um, if you were if you were not a medtech entrepreneur now, what would you be doing instead if there was no limiting factors in the world? Like if money didn't matter anymore, you could literally do whatever you wanted to do. What would it be? Who are you? This is another Mike question, kind of like the yeah, book. yeah. And it's you know, Giovanni. Not, not a lot of people ask me this question, so I want you to know I took some thinking on this. So, so I it turns out I just love managing and being part of high performing teams, right? So. We all kind of go back to we think about what we what was our first passion, right? When we were younger. And for me, I was a middle distance runner in, in high school and college. And it's a very individualistic sport in the sense you gotta, you gotta get these these great, uh, you have to run these times and be people. But I always liked athletics and I was always part of teams. And I just love being part of the team and the energy that it creates. And then it turned out that I translated that into kind of being part of these these high-performing teams that hopefully do these, have audacious goals and kind of do kind of unique things in the med device space. So when I sold Devoro, it was the first time in my career, you know, I'm now 54, where I was like, I can, I can for the first time ever, first time in my life, I actually could do what you're saying, do whatever I want. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go back and be a track coach because that was so cool. That was my first passion. But it turns out, um, I, I like that. I, I'm a track geek. I follow track and field. I'm one of the few kind of uh, a loyal cust loyal uh, uh, patrons of that sport. But um, I just love kind of this space now and working with docs and working with other entrepreneurs to trying to break the mold and do new innovative things. And so that's what I want to do. I want to keep kind of doing what I've done in the last 20 years. And then I want to follow up with an immediate next question, but I'm going to do it after we get to who you are and, and who your companies have been. So I won't forget it. The, the next question I have for you is, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile. We've talked about Devoro Medical. And now also, 
even though you're an venture partner at Ching Bay Capital, I'm, I'm seeing 880 Medical. So I want to ask you, what does the name of your company mean? Companies, <laughs> Devoro Medical and 880 Medical. Like, is there a story behind those names? Or how yeah, they- yeah. So Devoro is a little bit more interesting. So Devoro, well, we came up with this wolf from back to me technology, the one that I mentioned that it started in stroke. And I have I started Neurovascular early in my career. This is the inverting sleeve technology. It looks, when you see the video for it, it's the coolest thing. And it it's still, I love looking at this for other applications now to help me inspire. But it kind of engulfs clot. It kind of swallows clot. And so devoro is Latin for to devour. And so the idea was we're going to go devour clot. And so it's kind of a descriptive term. And it was, it was just kind of a play on words for that. So that's devoro, And that's what uh, we did in peripheral thrombectomies. We tried to develop a technology or uh, we are we have developed the technology for really swallowing clot, not being limited by the physics of aspiration pumps, which can only suck with a certain amount of power. And so clots often get stuck on the tip of the catheter. So we developed this cool tech for devouring it. And then 880 Medical is, that's the incubator. I still have it. Um, and that's a little less creative. It just so happened the building was lo- located on a, a freeway here in the Bay Area called 880 Medical. And so we just called it 880 Medical. And I, I'm not even on 880 now. I'm on 680, but I have I have the name. I have the LLC. And, you know, who wants to go through all the effort of setting that up again? So uh, we've kept we've kept it and people seem to remember it. Those are the fun ones, right? So you got to have yeah. the good stories. You got to have these funny, the life works out that way stories. Yeah, so- the life works out. That's right. So we've got great insight from you. You have high energy already on the podcast thus far. And now I finally want to ask arguably the most important question on this particular episode, which is, who are you, Mike? Who is Mike Wallace? You talked about loving track. You talked about building companies. You talked about being a venture partner. And now you're sitting in front of me. But where are you originally from? How did you build your life? What, what did school look like to ultimately spit you out into this industry? And then what was your story that led you to ultimately selling off Devoro and then now being a venture partner with Shengbei? Yeah, and hopefully this is uh, maybe inspires the wrong word, but you, you'll see I really come from ordinary. I'm an ordinary person coming from an ordinary background. But um, so I, I would say that I'm kind of a gritty, kind of intellectually curious, mechanical engineering trained guy um, who over time has become a medical device businessman uh, just because it's been so fun to learn and there's so many facets to it. Um, I was raised by a hardworking British mother and an intellectually curious Irish father um, who also happened to be an engineer. So we're a family of engineers. Uh, and then I, I was a middle child growing up with three other siblings, competitive, kind of fun, very functional uh, family lifestyle. So um, I came to California um, after growing up between Philadelphia and Ireland. So my parents were immigrants. We lived half our life in Ireland, half the life in Philadelphia. Um, and that had a big influence. My dad took risks. He moved to this country. And I thought it was risky kind of going from the East Coast to the West Coast. So I came out here. For grad school, I like to run and do triathlons. I thought it'd just be a great climate to do that. So I went to UC Davis uh, and I started studying engineering there. And when I was there, I was going to do this cool biomechanics thing with this professor, but they had this this orthopedic surgeon who was doing 
ACL reconstruction surgery. And I decided to do my master's thesis with this doc. And he was this high energy guy. And, you know, doctors are kind of, you know, they're intellectually bright folks. And, and uh, it was fun working with this guy. He was super energetic. And we did the, my master's thesis. I went in the operating room and I had this little gizmo for putting on this, uh, this knee joint and measuring the loads of anterior cruciate ligament grafts in the surgery. And I was just kind of hooked. I loved working with docs and their energy, and this idea of, of doing things that might help help patients. And so I was leaving grad school and I looked for a job. This was pre, pre-internet. Internet was just coming out in 1995. And I co-called this, this guy named Eric Ingelson. He was running in this startup company called Target Therapeutics, the first neurovascular startup company. He invited me down for an interview and they then went public. And so I was went from this like the East Coast, which was a very conservative, much more conservative environment, to Silicon Valley, working for this med tech company, this company that was treating brain aneurysms. Okay. People were having massive strokes. Instead of clipping them, they were going up from the groin for a little catheter and filling up with the coil. And I got to work on this. And the company was going public and people were making money and patients' lives were being changed. And I just thought this was the most exciting. I, I like fell into nirvana. Like this was like, who thought that engineering and medical device and patients could be so exciting? And so I just loved the whole energy of it. And uh, I got kind of hooked. And then I stayed at Boston Scientific for seven years after that. Um, so I was a bigger company. We were a very highly functioning division, but right? it was a very much a standalone division. And I didn't appreciate the time just how highly functioning it was and how well run it was. But I stayed at Boston Scientific and I watched people after people after people leave Boston Scientific and go join these startups. And they would call me and ask me, Mike, will you come and uh, will you come and work with us at this company? And I kept saying no. I was at the time, my wife and I, we had, we ended up raising out of this very young family and having four kids very quickly. And I thought it was kind of too risky to leave and go do these startups. And then eventually I've had enough, right? So we all, people always ask me, when do you leave the big companies? Well, you leave the big companies, you'll know when you've had enough. And so I had a great run there at Boston. I'd worked my way up into senior management and I had a chance to really learn a lot of great critical skills uh, in leadership and product development. And then, but I'd had enough and I just dove in and I started working in startups. So I worked in three different startups. I worked in Barracks Medical, run by a guy named Greg Barracks. My first was a GI company, and I was the VP of R&D there. And it was a crazy experience. And, that, and Greg Barrett was an amazing CEO and led that company to a very successful exit. Um, sold that to, to Covidian and um, now Medtronic. And then I did a spine startup, which I learned a ton. The product was successful, but the company, it was my first, it was my, my first kind of miss. It was a very, very tough space. And then my third startup was Silk Road Medical, uh, which is now a very successfully IPO'd company uh, run by Erica Rogers. And so I had the pleasure of, of learning by running, being on the management team and seeing how all these companies worked. And so I was taking it all in and watching, observing all the dynamics as I did my part, which was usually R&D, then also R&D and operations. And then I was eventually a COO uh, in roles in the last two companies. So, and then I finally had the guts, okay? After 
um, 20, 20 years to start my own companies up. And after I felt like I had the foundation for doing that. And some people don't do it this way. Some people just dive in earlier. And uh, but I kind of took a little bit more uh, methodical approach, uh, but always with the vision of going and doing this my own. I always thought that would be cool to go do it my own one day. And so you've had this amazingly wild, wild entrepreneurial journey that you, like you said, grit and grind into this polished med tech entrepreneur and businessman. So now that you're here and you had this amazing success story, were you just intellectually curious? Is that why you decided to join the other side of the table as a venture partner? Yeah, I, oh, so now, yeah. So now it's, um, it's just fun, honestly. So I, I'm, you know, so I'm part-time venture partner and I'm, I'm still, I still imagine myself, I'm still thinking about what's next and incubating a few ideas, but I, I think it's an opportunity, obviously for, 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 I, I do think by going through that process as an operational person that you have something to contribute to a venture fund. And I also think you can help other uh, CEOs. So um, I do think it's really fun to see all the different diseases and to, to listen to these exciting stories that these other CEO founders have and these CEOs have. But I also think that I do, as you go through the process, I do have something to give back to them and to the venture partners. So I think it's a reciprocal uh, kind of uh, relationship. And so, and I'm sure you giving back to the community, but also having a little bit of a different perspective now being a venture partner. I mean, you've been through the exits before. So I just want, I just want to know if, if this whole thing is tying together where you're gearing up for your next big adventure. Yeah. So for the, for, Giovanni, for the first time in my life, I'm not gearing up for anything. I'm gonna, <laughs> I, first, I've been trying to architect my career my whole life. And so now I'm trying to like to be a little bit more Zen, if, if I can use that that coin term, and be a little bit more present. So I'm given to venture. I'm tinkering. I'm actually working on a direct-to-consumer product right now, which I'm self-funding for just the for the pure fun of of uh, of product development. And then um, waiting to you know the itch is is still there, and I'm way too young just to hang it up. But I'm going to be opportunistic and, and I'm going to try to jump on something that kind of really catches my eye. And in the meantime, just keep helping these entrepreneurs. That's kind of my current plan. So I want to go back and I don't and we're going to jump into the bunch of objective questions that I have for you. But before I let it go, Devoro Medical, you did a really nice description of why you ended up going into that area and then ultimately what it was um, devouring that clot. But what do you think about? if we can get a little geeky on the space, like the thrombectomy space itself, why did ultimately Devoro succeed in a particular space? Why did you think that the transcatheter market for this thrombectomy um, procedure was a success case to begin with? And then ultimately, where are we now in this bigger industry of, of thrombectomy? Because I feel like you alluded to it earlier, know the sandbox that you should be playing in because, you know, if there's a bunch of competitors going after the same thing, then you want to be careful of it. You then mentioned that you started your, your career at Target Therapeutics, which was the first neurovascular company. So it sounds like you were in the right place at the right time, building up to be in the right place at the right time. And all of a sudden, now the thrombectomy industry is a little bit uh, populated. 
Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's 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 going through that maturation process, right? Where um, because there's been some win- wins there. So, so I'll, I'll take you back to when I started the company five years ago. So, to, to 2018. Okay, um, we're we. My co-founder and I, Scott Greenholz. I got to mention his name. He's my great partner in a lot of my companies. I've had other partners that I've innovated with too. Uh, Scott Greenhalch and I have really been done a lot of really cool things together, and we we co-founded Devor together. We came up with this idea for originally for stroke, this idea of ingesting clot for stroke. And I had this deep background in neurovascular, which I mentioned, Target Therapeutics and Boston Scientific. So we understood that I understood that clinical problem really, really well. And we knew the technologies that were out there. And so we came up with this tech, this inverting sleeve tech that wasn't limited by aspiration power and thought, hey, we're going to go after stroke. And so that's what we did first. So when I left Silk Road, um, we first focused on stroke. And I know you, you want to talk a little bit about build to buy, but we did a build to buy there for that. And, um, and then I always had an eye on, at the time, peripheral thrombectomy was this like, it was this tiny little market. It was not what it is today. And uh, but I always thought that this idea eventually we could leverage that technology for peripheral. So I leave Silk Road. We do stroke. Stroke is hot. So stroke didn't used to be hot, right? Stroke, stroke used to be treated also with Linux with TPA. But there's big trials had occurred about six years earlier, which showed that mechanical thrombectomy was better than IV drugs. And so that market had converted to market to to uh, mechanical thrombectomy. So that's why. We had a better, we had a better, we thought we had a better technology. We went after that market where there were some really good tailwinds. So then I needed the next project. We had this build the buy project. I knew it was going to end in two years. So I started studying peripheral thrombectomy. Well, five years ago, there, there wasn't much going on. It was still TPA was the, the, the solution combined with some mechanical thrombectomy. So, um, so those were the technologies. Boston had a technology. Ecos was out there. These were these were hybrid mechanical with lytics. And lytics had a big downside. So lytics had the downside of a 1% chance for a brain bleed. So you go in with a thrombosed, deep vein thrombosis in your leg. And if if the general practitioner even refers you, you there's a small chance to get the lytic, you got a brain bleed. Who wants a brain bleed? Who wants a stroke from a swollen leg? Right? That's crazy. So then these two little companies came along and really deserve credit for disrupting the market. And those are Penumbra and Inari. Okay, so when, when I started working on thrombectomy, they were working on it, but they hadn't blown it up yet. And I was told by all my KOL friends, Mike, be careful how much money you raise because the exit valuation, the market is quite modest and you can't, you might be lucky to sell the company for 50 or $60 million. So be careful. So I was very capital efficient, didn't want to raise too much money. But then Inari and Penumbra came out with two very, very differentiated technology. One is an aspiration company, uh, which is Penumbra, sucking blood clots out. They did it for the brain. They went for the peripheral vessels. And then Inari, which, which for DVT was this, this stent dragging solution where they would core out the clot with a bag on the backside. And they were going along and they were out there and we were just doing our thing. And then all of a sudden they started getting quite robust results and they poured a ton of money into it. They raised, you know, they had these amazing sales and marketing organizations. 
And they were the ones who developed this market and they deserve the credit. And then the trifecta is, they're, they're the first two things. The trifecta was COVID hit. COVID hit, and then there was more coagulation blood problems out there. And the ICUs were building, busy managing these COVID patients. And so they wanted these, these hospitals needed these, these procedure solutions that were single session that kept them out of the ICU. And so Inari and Prenumbra's product solutions enabled that. So they, they were both publicly traded companies at this time. Their revenues were growing crazy. I think Prenumbra, peripheral thrombectomy uh, revenue growth, they, you know, I, I forget the exact quote, but they, in three years, they did what it took them to do 10 years in stroke. And Inari, as you know, is this amazing, successful IPO. So all of a sudden, this hot space came along. Here we were with this highly differentiated tech. And we were kind of a fast follower. And it was a little bit of hard work by the employees and, and uh, Devora, and then a, little, a lot of luck because we had this tailwind of Inari and Penumbra really disrupting the space. And that's a question that I used to talk a lot about luck in, in medical device. And I want to circle back because this is the second time it's getting brought up with you on our first call and out here. And I just want to talk about this notion of luck and and whether it's being a fast follower, market timing, et cetera. In your opinion, how much does luck play into med tech? Yeah, I mean, this may sound arrogant. I always thought Devorah was going to be a win for sure. Like it's just, it was, the, it depends on the scale of the financial win. In other words, I never, even if we didn't have the Inari, the Penumbra, I thought that this was, we had an opportunity to really help patients and have a winning product solution. But, but we, the luck part was, is that people took a modest-sized market and made it a, a much bigger market. And then that allows for bi bigger, bigger exit valuations. So the, that was the luck part. All the other things that I, we did were things I had learned over the last 25 years. So that wasn't, that was just grinding it out and doing all the things right, right? Assembling a great team, making sure you're in the right space, you know, that there's a real unmechanical need. Uh, successfully raising money, uh, you know, not running out of money, making progress on your technology to give confidence to the investors to give you more money, uh, courting the strategics. Uh, and so that was the unlucky part. And then the lucky part was, you know, of having this, this, the size of the exit going well. Um, so like even the, the most unlucky I've been in my career was the spine company. I did the, I, I always tell people the team was fantastic. It was led by a CEO named Tony Recupero, very talented guy, Nick Kerr, Amy Borgstrom, just a great group. And I had a great engineering team underneath me, Bob Garabedian uh, and some other uh, great folks. We did fantastic work. The product was successful, but the company didn't have a good exit, a big financial exit. That was the luck part. I want to jump into this because I actually, it was right after our, our first call. I ended up reading it twice, actually, in, in two different articles. And it just kind of had this recognition of, of words in my mind versus what we recently talked about. And, and now I'm dying to ask you, build the buy. And I know we talked about um, me wanting to bring this up, and here I am. So you talk about build the buy, the structured deal method, and I just want these entrepreneurs listening in right now to understand how does this whole thing fit in between coming up with an idea, market intelligence or market development at the right time or building a product within the right time, 
in the right market, knowing who the strategics are, how to raise capital efficiently, building a company, but tying this all together in this simple phrase of build to buy. What does this mean? Yeah. Do you mind? Thank you for asking me this. I, the, the build to buy, it's, a, it's an area that I studied a lot as an entrepreneur because I wanted to do build the buys. I wanted to shortcut, personally wanted to shortcut the investor process. I wanted to run, build companies and run companies. And I didn't want to necessarily spend all my time raising money. And so I thought, let's go do a build the buy. Let's go find a strategic investor. So a strategic investor would be Medtronic or Boston Scientific. Find out a gap in their product portfolio and approach them and do a build the buy. Build them a company that they will then agree to buy, right? So on the surface, it sounds like this beautiful, efficient thing. And I and I still like them if you can pull them off, but they're way more nuanced than that. So the, the, the general idea of a build to buy is, is that rather than raising exclusively angel and investor money, there's some part or all of the money you raise for your company is from a strategic investor. And with that investment, they then have the right to buy you typically for a predetermined price, right? Or, you know, to use a, a Wall Street term, they have an option to buy you. Now, what the, what the founders and the employees would like is we would, you would like the, the strategic investor not have the option to buy you, but the obligation to buy you if you hit a certain milestone. That's what you would like. You'd like to de-risk it completely. If I do my job well, then I'm willing to give up an upsized valuation on the exit. I'll take a more modest return. And you and but but rarely do strategics uh, agree to that. And because they know that they often don't need to do that to get to get the investment, but also strategics know that in three, five years after they make the investment, their strategic priorities could change inside their company. They may not want that asset and they don't want to be obliged to have to buy it from you if they do. So so typically build the buys are just an option to buy. And because of those, they're not as beautiful. They're, they're, they're not as elegant for the entrepreneur because there is a chance that the company won't buy them. And then you're a little bit of a lame duck, right? You had the strategic investor. You haven't spent all that time as a CEO uh, courting the you know courting all these other investors, you just say they don't buy you. Now you have to go and pivot and go raise money from somebody else, and people will always ask you, well, why didn't the acquiring company buy you? So, but that being said, I still like them. I'm still a, a big fan of them. Um, if you can find the right strategic investor, um, we we I my co-founder and I successfully did that with Stryker Neurovascular. We did two entities, something called TW Medical. We did an intrasacular flow diverting stent. They, it was more of a structured deal where they bought the IP and we agreed to work on the project. And then we did uh, a, a GW Medical, um, which was, um, sorry, yeah, GW Medical, which was a technology for the, the stroke solution, uh, which we, uh, the Wolf thrombectomy device, with uh, again with striker neurovascular, but they did in that case they did a build to buy because they didn't have and they don't have a process as striker at least at the time to do strategic investments and so uh, to do traditional investments and so they did more of this build to buy structure in that case. We we tried to reproduce that uh, recreate that strategy with Devoro. So Scott Greenhalgh and I successfully executed the build to buy the first two entities. 
So we went out there with Devoro and we wanted to do the exact same thing. So I tried to court Medtronic, tried to court Stryker, and I tried to court Boston Scientific for, for Devoro Medical. And in the end, none of them wanted to do a build to buy. They just saw it as being too risky. But we got the second best thing, which was Boston agreed to lead our A round. And we were super excited to have such, such a, a smart investor and well-informed investor kind of bless our program and be a corporate partner for us uh, in that case. So it's tough to architect. It, so it's not really, if people think, well, I'm, I'm going to do that. This is how I'm going to architect all my deals. And you can be opportunistic and sometimes do it, um, but it's hard to architect. It's not a necessarily repeatable uh, business plan that you can execute every time. So we're going to go into the specific story of Boston Scientific devouring Devoro Medical. But <laughs> I did want to just demystify this, or if it's a myth, then you can demystify it. <clears throat> if you do ultimately get a bill to buy or put an option to buy from a company, let's just say Boston Scientific, does it mean that Medtronic can't buy you? Again, it, it typically... Typically, when you do a build to buy, the primary investor, strategic investor, and this we'll just make up the name here. Just say it's Boston Scientific. They're the prime. They have the first right to buy you, and it only if they pass does the company have the option then of going and soliciting other offers. Now that's not what was in Javora. Javora was Boston was just a traditional investor. They had no preferred rights which is another alternative way of trying to raise money. And in some ways is the cleanest way for both the strategic investor and the company. And that's why if you look at Boston, who's the most prolific, I think, early stage investor, they deserve credit for that. Uh, Mike Mahoney, the CEO there, really embraces that. And, and they have a great team, BB team for, for doing it. They, they like to keep the, the deals clean and like, they like to invest as a traditional investor with no rights. So now we're getting into theoretical stuff, but it's your business mind that I'm curious. And then, so not that it happened to you, but what happens if there is this build to buy, option to buy, strategics who have invested into this company, and then they ultimately decide to pass? Does all of a sudden it mean like this is like some defunct smelly deal and then who else would buy it after that? Yeah, I mean, that's the risk, right? I think that you absolutely can recover most of the time, so there's two reasons why a strategic wouldn't wouldn't pull the trigger on a build to buy. One is is the, they don't like the tech anymore. The tech that, that does some have, have some hair on it, and then that is a problem for the company if that's the case. And the other one is that that they've strategically just moved on and they they're not as interested in that space. So I, I do think it's trickier for the companies to recover from that. But listen, startups have to survive. Have a lot of near, if you look at a lot of successful startups, they have a lot of near, the term near death experiences. A lot of them have problems and they recover and they move on. So if you hear about exits, uh, they, they almost died. They did a recap. I mean, it's just not unusual. So I don't think it's the death of a company, but it, it, it can make it trickier for sure. And honestly, build to buys are very, very difficult to, to, to even get. I'd say 95% of deals are not built to buy. And so if you're a CEO or a founder out there, I think, you know, be opportunistic if that plays out, but it, it rarely does. And what happens is you get excited about it. Then you look at the, 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 as you get into the deal, 
the terms are so messy that often it's not in the company's best interest to even sign the, 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 the bill to buy. If we go to DeVoro Medical and, and hang with me on how we dissect this story. So you start the company, right? And this is called the MedTech Money Podcast Series. So we're, we're going to talk about the capital raising aspect that ultimately led to the acquisition. So if you can kind of give like the cliff note version of how this whole yep. thing. So you start the company, then you have to fund the company somehow. Um, and then it goes through, I believe you mentioned Boston Scientific even jumping into the Series A. So whatever happened pre-Series A, just give the cliff notes as to you start the company, you fund it, you fund it more, you fund it more, you fund it more. How did all that happen? What was it like raising that capital? And then all of a sudden, Boston Scientific comes in and buys it. Like, What is that whole acquisition story and capital raising story? All right, I'll try to give the cliff notes. I could talk about this for an hour because it was... It was pretty exciting for me and everybody else involved, um, and it, it moved quite quickly. Like we we started and sold the company within four years, right? Which is in in, uh, in med device timelines is pretty quick. So um, start the company. I think I told I was trying to build the buy. So I, I went out. I'd worked for Boston before. I knew a lot of folks there. I had a relationship with them. I trusted them. I think they had some trust in me that I could develop good, cool products, good products. So I really pursued them and some other strategics. They ended up passing on me the first time and not investing in the company because it just wasn't, the timing wasn't right. So I ended up getting a, I brought Shang Bay in and they led my C round. And that was through another connection, a guy named Eric Engelson, who's a venture partner there and just a, a, a very talented entrepreneur himself. Um, so we did a seed without Boston. Then they came back to me and they were then interested in, in leading and that their timing was better. And so this time I got a little smarter and um, not as lazy. So it turns out if you're going to be a CEO, you know, if you're an engineering CEO like me, you want to be efficient. Well, you can't be selfishly efficient. You actually have to cast a wide net. So I knew I was getting a term sheet from Boston. I went out and I got a second, I, got, I pursued at least one other term sheet. I think you have an obligation to at least try to get two term sheets, ideally more, so you can do, you know, do as best for the company. How can you negotiate anything if you only have one term sheet? It's basically impossible. So, so Boston provided a, a term sheet, which was fantastic. I had a second term sheet. And then, you know, we went through that negotiating process. And in the end, was very excited to have Boston lead it. But it kept everyone honest having a second term sheet. And so that's the second piece of advice uh, I'd give to every entrepreneur out there. If you think you can negotiate anything with one term sheet, it is very, very difficult, if not impossible. And you'll end up just falling on your sword and probably taking the terms that they give you. So, so we were fortunate we had two term sheets. But, but I, I, of course, Boston is an amazing partner. And we're really excited to have them. They took an observer board seat, which is traditional for them. I think Mike Mahoney, the CEO, said he just recently listened to a podcast he gave um, at um, JP Morgan, sorry, one of his uh, speaking arrangements there. And they have 30 to 40 investments they're having at any one time. So they typically take observer board seats and not voting board seats, which keeps it a little bit cleaner for them. We then take the money and head down, and we're all about that cadence and that execution. You know, how can I build the best team? And how can I stack the deck? And, you know, how can we execute to show progress? We're plowing along. And then Inari and Pernumber start blowing the market up. And then I had, I was very fortunate where I had VCs come looking for me. Okay. 
which is, boy, isn't that nice to have people actually running you down rather than you running them down? And so Casper uh, de Clark from Norwest came uh, and asked me, would I be interested in taking money now? And I said, I'm not ready for money. And uh, it's a great fund. He's a great, great venture guy. And uh, he came in. And so, I, you know, that Kleinerism is you take money when you can get it, not when you need it. So I, I wanted to keep that. I was worried about taking extra money because I wanted to stay lean. I was worried about taking too much money then I'd have to get a bigger return for investors. So, but then I saw, you know, just read the tea leaves and saw the market was blowing up. And I thought, let me take the capital. I'll build, instead of just doing arterial thrombectomy and DVT, we'll also add the third application, which is pulmonary embolism. And I'll take the money and I'll build up my team and go after all three products at the same time. And so that's what that capital did. That's what we did. Um, and we were, Plugging along, we're very, again, fortunate to have great leaders, uh, great engineering team uh, at the company, uh, and we're making great progress. And then, honestly, out of nowhere, we had an unsolicited offer, not from Boston, but from another strategic. And they approached us. They loved what we were doing, and they got very excited. And it was still early, right? We'd only had clinical experience on one of the three products, the arterial product. And they made an offer to us. and. Um, the board said, Mike, you got to hire a banker. And so I went out and hired Neil O'Brien from, from Guggenheim. And they did a fantastic job for us. And uh, we didn't run a process. Like, we didn't go out and solicit a bunch of offers. We just decided to take this unsolicited offer very, very seriously. And we obviously kept Boston Scientific in the loop that we had an offer. We were uh, because they had been so loyal to us and investing in us. And they felt like it was too early to buy us. They were very, very genuine and very direct with us. And, and so, but the process was playing out. This other, this other uh, strategic was uh, very sincere. I want to make an offer. We were very sincere as a company and entertained that offer. I was 90% sure that I was going to be working. We were going to be working for this other strategic uh, acquirer. And then at the last minute, Boston came in with the best offer. And uh, which, for just to demystify that, is typically whoever gives the most cash up front. There's, as I learned from our lawyers, there's a little diatribe that they read off. It says, you know, you haven't, you have, you know, you have to do what's right as a shareholder representative. You have to do what's right for your investors. And taking the most cash up front is typically deemed as being the safest return for the investors. And so both of them were fantastic offers. It was super flattering, the whole process. And we were obliged to take the, 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 the best offer, which was Boston Scientific's offer. And lo and behold, we did the deal. So that closed in, in November, 2021. Um, that, that company, that division, the peripheral vascular division of Boston Scientific is run by two great leaders, Jeff Mervis, at least the vascular group is, and Kat Jennings, and they're a very, very competent group, and uh, they're managing that product now. And it's it was early for them to acquire the company um, in the sense that ideally they would have liked Devoro to have de-risked the, the clinical feasibility for those products a little bit further. But uh, I'm you know really happy that the partnership ended up being with Boston, and um, I, I think they're going to do some great things with that tech. I'm really hoping they do some great things in that tech. 
This is my final sign-off question for you because that was a phenomenal story of, of how you built it and, and also ultimately how you funded the company leading up to good advice on having multiple term sheets and then hiring a banker to ultimately get a great offer. So thank you for that mechanical insight. Um, my, my question that I wanted to leave off to you was going back to one that I was excited to ask you earlier on when we were talking about if you weren't a med tech entrepreneur, what would you be doing now? Right. And you found, and you told us that, you know, you love track, but at the end of the day, you love building these entrepreneurial teams and being with innovation. So I have to ask you, you know, you had a phenomenal career in med tech. You've had phenomenal entrepreneurial success. And I've asked this to two other, um, what I call med tech legends, which is Antoine Peppernick, who's the chairman and, and CEO of um, Sofinova Partners over in Paris, and Daniel Hawkins, who is the former CEO and founder of Shockwave Medical and now the CEO of Avail Med Systems. And I asked them because, you know, very similar to you, it's these success stories after success stories after success stories. And you guys just keep on going after it. And, you know, at least from, from my perspective, I, I'm in such high volume contact with entrepreneurs that, you know, they want to build these companies to go sell off and they want to go make $10 million, $50 million, $100 million, $500 million. And, you know, all the problems in the world will be solved once they make all this money and they're going to go drink Mai Tais on a beach and they're going to go buy the house that they've always wanted and they, they won't have any debt and they don't have to live this under drowning underwater feeling of being a, a poor entrepreneur or living paycheck to paycheck, whatever it may be. And all of a sudden you hear these people who they do it and then they do it again. And then they sell a company on a proverbial Friday and they start a company on the next proverbial Monday and they just never stop and never stop and never stop. And so here you are as a venture partner for Shangbei, giving back to the community, still involved in the entrepreneurial world, having 880 Medical as well. Not even two years ago, it's it's been a year and a half dating this particular podcast when, since when you sold off Deboro, and not even a full year and a half. What is it with certain people like yourself, that DNA, that entrepreneurial DNA that just doesn't allow you to go drink Mai Tais on the beach? Yeah, and uh, before, before I answer, I have to say one small plug. So. My co-founder, Scott Greenhalgh, we have co-founded a second ago. He's running it, and he's doing an amazing job. It's called Early Bird Medical. So we're doing a postpartum hemorrhage bleeding product, and it's called Early Bird Medical. So that's an early-stage company. So I, I have the pleasure of being supporting him this time. He supported me on the other one. So that's exciting and probably the most exciting thing that I'm doing outside of Shangbei that I want to mention. So for those investors who are excited about the female Tech uh, uh, femtech space. We have a company there, and we have a corporate partner, one corporate investor that's involved with us, Cooper Surgical. So we're excited there. All right. So back to kind of what drives entrepreneurs. You know, it turns out to so it turns out I think there are two things. So it's kind of in general, people those people that you mentioned, um, Hawkins, and uh, I mean the, just amazing, successful guys. But I'm guessing. It's similar. These folks, and I would put my, I enjoy this too, is tenacity and obsession. So you're tenacious. You're kind of dog with bones. You just kind of, when you get on something, you just obsess over it and you just want to get it. You want to run down every path to try to make that be a success or at least bring it to some end. Like 
finish it. Like I don't, I hate things. Some people just like starting things. I don't think they make for very good entrepreneurs. It's the ones you start and actually drive it to some finality and you get satisfaction of that, of getting into some completeness. So even when I kill programs, I have to take it and I have to document why I killed it. It's like this obsession. And it turns out that that, that obsession of taking it to some finishing endpoint, it's, it's great for being an entrepreneur. It's not necessarily great for the rest of your personality. I mean, it doesn't necessarily make for peace of mind, right? Because you're ruminating over these things. Or it doesn't always, I don't think necessarily is the, way, the, the place to get, you know, nirvana. But it does, I think it's a very common characteristic for entrepreneurs. And when you have kind of that itch or that, that desire to want to obsess on things, it doesn't make for, it, it, those type of people aren't very good at sitting on the beach. They're really annoying people to sit on the beach with because <laughs> they don't want to act there. So they're just two different personalities. But I get it. It's, it, you know, entrepreneurs, I, I do think there's some peace in mind that comes with financial security. And everybody wants that, right? So I think it's organic. But by the time you get there, um, like you hear all these people, it's the, it's the process. If you don't enjoy all the things in between, then you're never going to be a successful entrepreneur because that's 99% of the time is doing all that work. So, and by the time you, you do it, uh, you get good at it. And then like a lot of people, when you get good at something, then you enjoy it even more, right? I mean, that's what we all want. We want to have some sort of, we want to have some expertise. So that's my little diatribe on that. I want to sign off with just the most classic question that I can ask or of you on this one. To all the MedTech entrepreneurs listening, and just to come back full circle on this MedTech Money podcast and and once again, cliff note version. If you could get on a loudspeaker and talk to the world of medtech entrepreneurs about your philosophy of raising capital as simple or complex, what would you tell the world of medtech entrepreneurs? Just one classic takeaway of raising capital for your ideas and entrepreneurship. I think the first thing is you just need to be really ready to do it. Like before you go raise money, you better really believe that you know that space, you have the skills or you think uh, to either build a team around it. Like I, 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 you know, I don't mean to intimidate people, but it takes a while to learn. It's just a very regulated, constraint-driven space. And so you it, make sure you really know what the hell you're doing and you understand all the ins and outs. And then and then you'll have the confidence to go raise money from a lot of resources. But the, the best way to, in order to raise money the second time, you have to make money for people. And how do you make money for people? You have to know what the heck you're doing. You need to stack the deck. You can't, you're not going to about a thousand percent. But my advice for entrepreneurs is sometimes it's better to go work for entrepreneurs or work in entrepreneurial companies and learn all the things. And then come back and be an entrepreneur than it is to be the entrepreneur right now. And that's how I did it. I'm not saying that's the only way to be successful. I'm sure there's a bunch of different ways, but that would be learn how to do it from a lot of different folks. And then when you have all the skills, then go do it. Because I feel like most of the time you have to raise money. The only people who give you money at the beginning are friends and family. And I don't know how you how you face friends and family when you lose their money. Yeah. So so make sure you're in a good position when you go and you raise that company. And you don't have to do it like at the beginning. Go 
go, you know, OPM, learn from other people's money first, you know, and master your OPM, other people's money. Go learn from other people's money first. But the second you raise their money, it's like your money. And you're going to see those people. And um, so that was how I always thought about it. It's a little bit of a fear base. Maybe that's not a good way, but um, uh, that's that's my advice. Know what the heck you're doing before you go try to raise the money. You heard it here first. This is Mike Wallace, the successfully former founder and CEO of Devoro Medical, successfully acquired by Boston Scientific not all that long ago and current venture partner over at Changbei Capital. I want to say thank you so much for your time, for giving all your insights, for sharing your stories with us, for helping out through another way, through this podcast, the MedTech Entrepreneurial Community. And this is the MedTech Money Podcast series where we demystify raising and investing capital. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks, Giovanni. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.